For the last couple of Lord's Day evenings, we have been meditating upon some thoughts in 2 Corinthians 5.21. We have concentrated upon the three persons that are in view in the text. God the Father, God the Son, and God's people. The scripture says, For he, that's referring to God, hath made him, that's referring to Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The us and the we in the text are collective pronouns that refer to the Lord's believing people. The Lord's believing people, those who are saved by his grace, born of his spirit and washed in his blood. So therefore there are three parties in this text. And there are actually three things that are recorded concerning each party in the text. As I say, we've noted already what the text says about God the Father. What it says about God the Son. And now we're going to look at what it says about the people of God. This statement is one of the greatest statements ever made. I don't think I would hesitate to say that. I believe that to be true. It's one of the greatest statements ever made. One of the greatest statements found in all of the Bible. Because it is a description in very few words of a wonderful transaction of the grace of God. And I want us to think tonight in this final message of the three about what this text reveals concerning God's people. As I say, when the Lord speaks about us and about we, this is a family reference. This doesn't refer to everybody in the world. This does not describe every single person who has ever lived or who ever will live. Not everyone can say, He hath made him to be sin for us. And not everyone can say that we are made the righteousness of God in him. This is a family description. Just like when the Bible says Christ died for us. It's a collective term referring to God's people and to God's people alone. Now, there are at least three things that we can note in this verse of Scripture concerning the people of God. And I want us to think in the first place about what it says concerning the guilt of our sin. The word sin is found here. God has made him to be sin for us. I've already mentioned this is not merely a reference to a sin offering, as some have alleged. It includes that. But that's not all that's in this word. He has made him to be sin for us. That accursed thing. He's made him, Galatians 3.13, to be a curse for us. That's what it's referring to. He has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin. Notice that sin is mentioned twice in the text. But whose sin is it? Well, it's certainly not Christ's sin. 
For we've already established his impeccability. We've established his purity. It's not talking about Christ's sin. It's talking about our sin. It's talking about the, the sin of human beings. This is human guilt. And this could never be stated of any one of us who knew no sin. There's not a person listening to me tonight under the sound of my voice who can say that they've known no sin. But it's Christ who knew no sin. Yet we are sinners by nature and by practice. And this, of course, is a fundamental truth in the Bible. I do think some preachers fail in that they will certainly mention to people that they are sinners, but they never explain what they mean. You know, they'll just say, well, we're all sinners, aren't we? But they never actually explain or expound what sin is, what it means. But I want to do that briefly tonight. Christ knew no sin, but we are sinners by nature and by practice. When I say by nature, that means we're born in sin. A child doesn't have to be taught from its earliest days how to commit sin. It comes naturally. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Psalm 58 verse 3. Behold, I was born in sin and shapen in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51 verse 5. The Word of God in so many places establishes that man is a sinner by nature. This is a fundamental doctrine. Our innate sinfulness. Every imagination of the thought of his heart was evil continually. It says that in Genesis 6, 5. But that was still true after Noah came out of the ark. Because you read the same kind of statement in Genesis chapter 8. So what is sin? What does it mean to be a sinner? In an earlier message I gave you a twofold definition. I'll repeat it. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When it says and come short of the glory of God, it literally means and are constantly coming short of the glory of God. So there's one aspect of sin. It's a falling short of God's standard or God's glory. It's a failure to meet God's mark. But on the other hand, sin is a transgression of the law. 1 John 3 verse 4. Sin is the transgression of the law. And if you were to read Ephesians chapter 2, the first few verses, it's quite clear that this comes naturally to us. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. It goes on to say, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, it means our manner of life, in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and notice this, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So what is sin? 
It's something that comes naturally to us. But what is it? Well, the catechism question and the answer that's provided is a really good definition. Sin is any want, it means lack, of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is any want of conformity unto, any lack of conformity unto, or transgression of the law of God. That encompasses those two texts, Romans 3.23, John 3.4. Interestingly, the root meaning of both the Hebrew in the Old Testament and the Greek words in the New Testament for sin is literally to miss the mark or to fail to hit the mark. There's a target, and you don't meet that target. You don't hit that target. That's the root meaning of sin. The idea really is of erring from a rule or a standard or a law. Sin is a failure to meet God's standard, and it is a breaking of His rule or His law. Now let's emphasize again, that's not true of Christ. Because the text says He knew no sin. The Lord never failed to meet the mark. The Savior didn't fail to meet God's standard. In fact, he was able to say, wasn't he, in his earthly life, I do always those things that please him. The Lord never broke the law. But because of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, mankind generally is now disposed to sin. He has a will that is inclined to disobedience and disinclined to obedience. His will is inclined to sin. And it's something that man voluntarily fell into. He wasn't forced into it. God didn't, as it were, put a gun to his head and say, now you've got to become a sinner. Fallen man is a fallen man by his own action and by his own volition. And therefore, When man fell, he fell into a state of sin. A sinful condition. And that has affected him in every way. His judgments, his inclinations, his will. So the idea that a man in that condition can just voluntarily decide all of a sudden to follow God is a myth. Because he has a fallen will. He has a sinful will. That sin is an underlying condition of his soul, which in turn produces actions of sin or sinful deeds. Really, the Lord Jesus explained it in terms of a tree and its fruit. You know that you judge a tree by its fruit, what it produces. Now, why does it produce what it does? Because that's the nature of the tree. A tree that produces a certain type of fruit does so because it's that kind of tree. Our Lord said, and I'm quoting here from Luke chapter 6, from verse 43, very important words, For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Now let's emphasize this. Neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Someone whose will is a fallen will is not going to produce goodness. They're not going to move in a Godward direction. So read on. 
For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil, for of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. When you you hear certain things coming out of somebody's mouth, it tells you what's in their hearts. When I was a boy, we would go to the doctor for a checkup. And one of the first things the doctor used to say to me was, stick out your tongue. I don't know if that ever happened to you, but he used to tell me, open your mouth and put your tongue out. Now why did he do that? Because he could tell a lot from the state of your tongue what your health was like. If your tongue was heavily coated, you'd be saying there's something not quite right here. You're, you're, you're sick in some way. Sometimes you get spots on your tongue or some other manifestation of something that's going on in your body. It manifests itself through the tongue. But that's also true of your speech. A man is known by his speech. That's what Jesus said. Of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. The words that come out are because of what's in your heart. Therefore, when we look at all of this, we can say it's not what you do that makes you a sinner. It's what you are. You do what you do because of what you are. It's not the other way around. A lot of times, people, even well-meaning Christians, will talk about outward sins. This is why you're a sinner, because you do this, you do that. That's not true. That's not why you're a sinner. You do those things because you're a sinner. That's why you do those things. Because of your sinful condition. See, sin or sinfulness is a state of the soul. It's a condition. It's a condition that all men are in. Sinfulness. We are sinful in the sight of a holy God. Sin is an evil. It's a failure to be right. It is a moral evil. It's something that's wrong in its very nature. It is literally lawlessness or a breach or breaking of God's law. So just to take what the Bible teaches about this, man as a sinner is corrupt in his nature. He's in a state of guilt before God. In fact, the whole world has become guilty before God, according to Romans 3.19. And that's something else that needs explanation, just to tell people that they're guilty. You know, sometimes we think about people being guilty, that guiltiness is a feeling, you know, a feeling of guilt. But that's not the biblical definition of guilt. The guilt that we're talking about is when you're found guilty of something. You may feel it or you may not feel it, but it's still true. If you've broken the law, you're guilty. You may not feel guilty. You may protest your innocence. And there's hardly a guilty man in any prison in the country. They're all innocent. For some, in some degree and measure. There's always mitigating circumstances. It wasn't me, it was somebody else or somebody made me do it. Or as someone told me one time, it was the devil that made her do it. Somebody referring to a sin in the life of their daughter. It was the devil made her do it. It wasn't her fault. The guilt of sin needs explanation. Guilt is quite literally liability to punishment. It's the liability of a sinner 
to punishment for his violation of God's law. I quoted there a minute ago, Romans 3, 19. Let's look at that verse. Romans 3, verse 19. And this is a kind of a class in theology, I guess you could say. Hopefully it's not too deep. But Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. It doesn't mean that they'll feel guilty. It literally means, as the margin in your authorised version will suggest, subject to the judgment of God. That's what guiltiness is. It's a liability to punishment. So when you say man is guilty before God, it means that he deserves what's coming to him. He's under condemnation. He's liable to God's judgment. He's liable to the punishment of his sin. Your guilt is your demerit, if you like. Your guilt is your ill-desert which makes you liable to punishment. There's no one in hell who doesn't deserve to be there. I've heard ministers say that everybody in the world deserves a chance to be saved. And I've often thought, where's that in the Bible? I've never read that anywhere in Scripture. Anywhere. That anybody, anywhere deserves God's salvation. But I read the opposite. I read that we deserve punishment. We deserve wrath. And so our text, to get back to it, reveals the guilt of human sin. If it's true, and it is, that the Lord Jesus was made sin for us, then we were the sinners. We were the guilty ones. Because he bore our punishment. And that's the wonderful thing about the cross work of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ put himself under the liability to punishment. He became liable for the punishment of our sins. It was as if he were guilty of those sins, though he was not in himself. You see, to be in a guilty state means to be under condemnation, and it is to to be worthy of punishment. And that is why people often will speak of being a guilty, hell-deserving sinner. That's a really good description. That is a very apt description of what we are. Guilty, we're liable to punishment. Hell-deserving sinners. That's a terrible state to be in. And we need to realize just how undeserving and how ill-deserving we really are in our sin. If we could ever get a real handle on that, it would give us a greater appreciation of the grace of God. The sinner has no merit whatsoever in himself. He's worthy of judgment. He's deserving of eternal punishment. That's how God views us. I'm always interested in those who want to talk about people making mistakes in their lives. You've heard this. People talk about some egregious sin that they've committed. Well, I made a mistake. No, you didn't. A mistake is when you're sitting in school and you put 3 plus 3 is 9. That's a mistake. When you deliberately do something that you know is wrong, that's not a mistake. That's not a a, a misdemeanor. 
in the sight of God. And W.G.T. Shedd, a great theologian, said, Total depravity therefore means the entire absence of holiness and not just the highest intensity of sin. Again, some theologians will talk about total depravity as if it's referring to the awful sinfulness in itself. It is, but it's more than that. Total depravity, sometimes called total inability, is referring to the entire absence of holiness, not just the highest intensity of sin. We're fallen creatures, we're devoid of all righteousness, we're totally corrupt. What a terrible position to be in. That makes us guilty. We're liable to God's judgment. So in this text, the guilt of our sin is most certainly outlined. But so is, secondly, the greatness of our salvation. A friend of mine from back in Northern Ireland has a saying. When you meet him, oftentimes he'll, he'll say that to you. Brother, it's great to be saved. I've heard him say that a thousand times. Brother, it's great to be saved. That man was lifted from the depths. He was lifted from a life of wickedness. And he appreciates God's salvation. And it is a great salvation. That's how it's described. Hebrews 2 verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? It's a great salvation. And why is it such a great salvation? We'll consider the awfulness of our condition. Think about that first point. If that's all true, then how great our deliverance from that guilt and from that sin. This is a great salvation that has been wrought for us. Look at the text. He hath made him to be sin for us. That is, on our behalf. So that your sin and mine, believer, was dealt with in the death of Christ. That's how it was dealt with. Our sins were laid upon him. The Lamb of God has taken away our sins and our iniquities at the cross. All my iniquities on him were laid. All my indebtedness by him was paid. Whosoever believeth the word hath said hath everlasting life. God has made him to be sin for us. In Hebrews 9 verse 26, the apostle wrote these words. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What a work that is. The taking away of our sin. The salvation of his people is that which the Lord Jesus came to procure and to purchase. Remember at his birth, Matthew 1 21. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And Paul further said to Timothy, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. What a text. You can never save yourself if you lived a thousand lifetimes You could never save yourself. For how could you ever satisfy divine justice for your sins? How could you, how could I ever get rid of our sin? 
For a start to begin with, we loved our sin. See, we're in love with our sin. That's the problem. You talk to people who don't know the Lord today. They love their sin. They don't want to be rid of it. They love it. They enjoy it. That's why they do it. But the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we were dead in sins, He quickened us together with Christ. Sin is that which separates man from God. That's the barrier that comes between us and God. But Christ removed that sin for His people. As Peter put it, He died the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. And how wonderfully that is spoken of in many, many scriptures. The greatness of our salvation, what the Lord Jesus has done. Let me give you a little taster of what the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Again, in Isaiah chapter 43, in verse 25, he describes this wonderful work in the following way. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. I'm old enough to remember the days of the old black blackboard and the white chalk and the duster. When I was in what you call grade school, the duster used to be employed as a weapon by the teacher. Yep, I've seen that duster full of chalk flying from one end of the room to the other and almost colliding with somebody's head. Those were the days. You'd go to jail for that today. Without a doubt. But I remember when we were doing math, for example, the teacher would bring a boy up to the front. There was one kid in our class, just a poor guy. I don't want to start down that story tonight. I'll keep you for a long time, but this poor fellow, he never got anything right. He was just was not good at math. And so he would come up to the front and the teacher would tell him to do a certain sum, very simple, on the board. And he would stand there and all of a sudden he'd bow his head and he'd start crying. It was pitiful. And we all laughed. We shouldn't have. We should have felt sorry for him. But that was the way it was. But if he got it wrong, or I got it wrong, or somebody got it wrong on the board, you, you made this, whatever it was, an addition or a subtraction, you got it wrong. You know what the teacher did? They'd take that duster and just wipe it out like this. And it's all gone. Great, isn't it? Wonderful. All your mistakes rubbed out. That's what God means when he talks about wiping away our sins. They're not mistakes. They're deliberate things. But he says, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions. I've blotted out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. What a wonderful promise that is. Again, the, the prophet Micah goes further. In the minor prophet, Micah chapter 7, he talks about this wonderful work that the Lord has done. Jonah, Micah chapter 7, verse 19. He will turn again. 
He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. I'm told there are certain vessels that go out from the Jersey shore, away out as far as it's possible to go almost, and they dump a bunch of stuff into the ocean. They don't dump it into somewhere that's shallow where it can be washed up again. They dump it in the depths of the sea. That's what God has done with our sins. He has removed our sins. Oh, the greatness of our salvation, sin dealt with at the cross. Hebrews 10 speaks about it again. This language reminds us of the tabernacle. Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. This is something that he constantly did. But notice verse 12, but this man, this is, this is Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. There's no need for any repetition of the work of Christ, any reenactment of the work of Christ. It's done. He has procured deliverance from sin's penalty. And in this life, the believer is delivered from the penalty and from the power of sin and ultimately he's going to be delivered from its very presence. Oh, what a day that will be when we don't have to deal with sin, our own or anyone else's. Complete deliverance from sin. But that has been accomplished. That has been purchased by the blood of his cross. And it brings us then to think about the glory of our standing. We talked somewhat about this last time in terms of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. The glory of our standing. See, in this glorious transaction, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Something happens to give us a new standing. It's this glorious transaction of grace in which Christ was made sin, we have been made the righteousness of God in Him. Righteous before God. He was made sin, we are made righteous. What a great miracle of grace that is. This is the truth that we often call justification by faith. This is the truth that... Martin Luther said was the article of a standing or falling church. If a church doesn't stand for justification by faith alone, it's not worthy to be, to be called a church. Justification by faith alone, that word alone is important. Because you talk to Romanists and they'll tell you that they believe in justification by faith, but it's not faith alone. It's faith plus works. It's faith plus the intercession of the saints. It's faith plus the intercession of Mary. It's faith plus masses. It's faith plus pilgrimages and the worship of images and prayers for the dead and lighting candles and all of the rigmarole associated with Rome. It's not faith alone. It's faith plus works. But the Bible knows nothing of this. 
The glory of our standing is that we have been justified, we have been accepted as righteous in God's sight through faith in Jesus Christ. It's because of Christ that God accepts me. In fact, he accepts me as he accepts Christ. We finished our service last Lord's Day with that lovely hymn. In the Beloved accepted am I. Risen, exalted, and seated on high. You see, the truth is, as that hymn suggests, that God sees my Saviour and then he sees me in the Beloved, accepted and free. I read on a calendar the other day, something that I thought would be very fitting in relation to the message that I'm preaching tonight. The writer of the calendar piece said this. Dear Christian, put all your confidence in the truth that God is pleased with his Son. Trust that when the Spirit says you are accepted in Christ, he means it. Set your mind on things above and see the Father smiling on you in his Son. And then there follows a quote from John Bunyan. This is what really took me. Sinner, thou thinkest that because of thy sins and infirmities I cannot save thy soul. But behold, my Son is by me, and upon him I look, and not on thee, and will deal with thee according as I am pleased with him. That's a wonderful statement. God says this, Upon Christ I look, and not on thee, And I will deal with thee according as I am pleased with him. That's the gospel of justification. Our assurance is based upon this fact of imputed righteousness. Look again at that great portion in Romans chapter 3. You have here a definition of sin, an exposition of sin indeed. But it says in verse 21 and 22, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. Imputed righteousness. If you're anything like me, and I think you are, your feelings change. Your Christian experience fluctuates. There are times when I feel very, very joyful. There are other times when I don't feel so joyful. It's almost the opposite. But my salvation doesn't depend on how I feel. Here's something which is true no matter what my feelings are, you see. No matter what my feelings are, God's righteousness is mine through Jesus Christ. That's something I claim. That's something I believe. And obviously this is something that's not only taught in Scripture, it's taught uh, by clear expression, but also by type and in picture. You have a wonderful picture of this in Ezekiel chapter 16, where you have that infant lying in its blood. And the Lord there is referring to exactly what happens in our justification. Ezekiel chapter 16 You look at verse number 6. He says, And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, 
I said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood, live. There's the effectual call of the gospel. Live. There's the Spirit speaking to you, causing you to live. Live. Yea, I said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood, live. Then you go to verse 8. Now when I, had, when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. Then washed I thee with water. Yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee also with broidered work, and shod thee with badger skin, and I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk. This is all language borrowed from Old Testament typology. Things that represent the righteousness of Christ covering his people. And there's a great picture of this also in Zechariah, where the Bible speaks of him standing at the altar. Joshua, the high priest, clothed with filthy garments, stood before the angel, Zechariah 3, verse 3. And he answered, verse 4, and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with chains of raiment. This is a picture of justification. Our sins removed from us, and the righteousness of Christ placed upon us the garment of his righteousness justified fully by Calvary's love oh what a standing is mine you need to rejoice in the standing that you have before God through your Savior the glory of our standing is in the fact that we are viewed by God as being in Christ it's interesting to note in Mark chapter 9 when the Lord Jesus garments were transfigured on the mountain the word that's used there for his garments being white is employed in Revelation 7.14 to describe the garments of God's people those that washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb it's the same word the idea being that his goodness is our goodness before a holy God what a glad assurance this is what a wonderful thing to be able to say that I'm standing in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ Jesus thy blood and righteousness my beauty are my glorious dress midst flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head how good it is to be able to say this that were justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The blood and righteousness of the Saviour. This is our only hope and plea before a holy God. There is salvation nowhere else. God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Oh, that Christ may be all our trust for time and for eternity.